Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, again, we're glad you're here with us on this Easter, both here in this room and down in our Life Center uh, at the same time with us. And uh, we pray that God just continues to bless and encourage you. And as Mike, our student pastor, talked about all the things that God can and wants to do. We sang, well, let me just read the words again. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Amazing Grace is one of the most recognized songs in all the English-speaking world. Uh, It has been recorded by Mahalia Jackson, Judy Collins, Joan Baez, Aretha Franklin, Rod Stewart, Johnny Cash, The Birds, Elvis Presley, Andy Williams, Amazing Rhythm Aces, and Willie Nelson, among hundreds of others. Uh, Johnny Cash... On, on often singing this song in prison said, for the three minutes that song is going on, everybody is free. It just frees the spirit and frees the person. I read this week that there are more than 7,000 recordings of Amazing Grace. Uh, I didn't go onto iTunes and try to count them myself. I don't know that they're all there. And it is estimated that it is performed 10 million times a year. Just think about that for a minute. 10 million. Um, After an instrumental recording was made of it using bagpipes by the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards of the British Army in 1972, it began to be used in funerals for military and first responders who gave up their lives in the line of duty. Amazing Grace was written by a former English slave trader named John Newton. In the 1770s, when he realized that God loved him, in spite of his past, in spite of what he had done, in spite of all of his experiences and and all, God loved him and it extended his amazing grace even to him. And many consider this song his spiritual autobiography in, in verse. But I suspect that none of us here this morning are probably guilty of the degree of evil, such as human trafficking, that Newton later admitted he'd carried out, that made this song such a big deal to him. We have to ask, what is so amazing about grace, about God's grace? Why does it matter? Can this song, uh, even more importantly, this, this whole idea of grace, speak to us today, speaking to our lives, especially if we don't feel like we've committed any horrific sins on the scale of a John Newton. It appears that, that Newton wrote this song based both on the story of the prodigal son found in, in Luke chapter 15 in the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament and Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament of the Bible. And so, we're going to look at that, the Ephesians passage this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open it to Ephesians 2. Or if you have your mobile device, you can open it to the, open the Version Bible app and go to the live page. If you have neither of those, we have in your bulletin an insert that you can take that has the scriptures on there and some places to fill in notes if that's 
if that's helpful to you or to write some other things down that you may want to recall. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Christians who lived in the, the community, the town of Ephesus, in what is today um, modern Turkey on its west coast. Um, and it was a, intended to remind the Ephesians of all God had done for them. And so Paul begins this chapter in verse 1 saying, once you were dead because of, this, of your disobedience and your sins. Now this, this word disobedience can be translated two or three different ways from the original Greek. It can be translated transgressions, it can be translated trespasses, and it, in, in all those cases, it's in the original Greek language, it carried the sense of someone who, who slipped or strayed from going the right way, who slipped off the path, who strayed from a, a trail, something like that. The other word here, sins, and we hear that word a lot, and sometimes we, in fact, we shut it down. We don't want to hear that word. There are actually a number of words in the Greek language that can be translated sin, and this one is hamartia, and it means literally to miss the mark. It is the image of a, an archer pulling the arrow back in the bow, firing it toward a target, and missing the target altogether. And, and the, Paul, the picture Paul here is giving us is that for the Ephesians, before Christ came into their lives, this, this idea of sins and, and disobedience wasn't simply that they were doing things wrong. We all do that, and, and that in itself is, is a, a big issue. But they had been, in fact, missing the mark over and over again, straying from the life that God intended for them. God created them for. God hoped for them. God saw from the beginning of time that this was my intention for your life. For we may understand that, that sin is doing something wrong, like someone who steals, they lie, they kill, but most of those things are extremes beyond what we typically experience in our lives. I mean, most of us would say, well, I'm not a bad person or anything, and, and we use that. But Paul is showing us here that, that sin means so much more than simply doing something wrong, doing a not nice thing or a bad thing. Because in ways that, that all of us, I think, can relate to, he's saying, he's pointing to a life that hasn't lived up to what it could be, that has failed to experience God's best, that hasn't done all the things that God had hoped and intended for that life. So that if you're a husband, are you the best husband you can be to your wife? Or if you're a wife, are you the best wife? And you can look back over and you can see a consistent history of consistently doing all you could do. If you're a parent, have you done all you could do for your children? If you're a, the, the, all of us are children of someone, have we done all we could do for our parents? Have we honored them in, in all the ways that are appropriate? Have we done our best in school? Have we done our best at work? Can we honestly say that we haven't shirked some of our duties, we haven't backed off, that we've given in our best on every occasion, every day, throughout the day? Are we the best friend we could be to someone close to us? And you can go on and on and on. Paul is asking, if we have reached the goodness, the kindness, the love in life that God originally created you and me to live for. And, and he, he says more. Verse 2, he says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. 
by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Paul says, living this way, living the way we want to live, ignoring what God has to say, is in fact living exactly the way that the devil wants us to live. We may not be consciously thinking that. We may not think, well, I'm not a Satan worshiper. I'm not into all that kind of stuff. But if we are not living the way God wants us to live, we are falling short of God's desire, God's hopes for us, every one of us. And this lifestyle then too often gets caught up in our wants, our desires. You know, if it feels good, do it. All those kinds of things which can be dangerous because sin has this very addictive quality to it. And, and we, something comes along and it's not a big deal, but we kind of shade the truth or we, we scoot a little bit over the line or we do something where we're not so sure is a terrible thing, but it's not the best thing that we could be doing. But once we do that, we find it, that there, there's a little further we could go that's not very hard. And, and we, we take another step, and then we take another step, and, we'll, and we take another step. And, and first thing we know, we're a lot further away from where we began, where we thought we were going to be. Our intention was never to go way over there. My intention was just to do a little. But each step draws us further in. Each time we cross a line, each time we, we judge that, I can get away with it this time, or it's no big deal. I could, I could fudge here, or I could, I could say this about someone over there. Each time, it moves us a little further away from where God intended us to be, the places that keep us from experiencing God's best for our lives. And at some point, we pause and we look around and say, whoa, how did I get way over here? And some of you, that may even be where you are today. Again, maybe it's not one big horrible thing or, or, or anything like that, but our lives are, are an accumulation of sins. And if facing that thought is scary for us, if it seems like that's, that's too much, then we tend to try to do other things to ignore thinking about that. We get active, we do other things, we go after other things, we, we spend ourselves in actions and activities. We run ourselves ragged and we wonder, eventually, what do I have to show for all of this? Because as Paul said, we have missed the mark and we strayed from the path that he hoped for us, that God created for us to live from his best. God who created us with, with, with so much potential, with, with everything possible before us, hates that we have missed all that he had for us, all that he hoped. You know, some people, they hear a passage like here in, the, in Ephesians where it talks about God's anger and they... they kind of focus in on that with this sense that God must hate me. I've done something wrong somewhere along the line. He must hate me. He must be waiting to zap me. He, he must want nothing more than to let me have it. And I don't want that. And so maybe I just ignore him. But here's the thing. You and I, we get that so mixed up. What God hates, what God gets angry about is that we have stopped listening to him, his truth, which is best for us, and we've allowed ourselves to go in directions and experience things that can no way ultimately be our best. He hates when we make decisions that move us away from, from what he had in mind. I mean, doesn't it make you mad? Doesn't it make you angry when someone you care about, maybe your kids or your spouse, make choices that that seem to be pulling them away from, from the very best that life could offer. Doesn't it make you mad when, when they get sucked into a bad group of friends? They start hanging around with people that, that you know are not going to be 
healthy for them in the long run. When they stop trying in school, when they stop trying to do their best at work, when they settle for just getting by. Doesn't the relationship even suffer as you know they could be doing more that it is not their best and they're just ignoring you? Don't you hate to see them wasting what is truly a God-given life? And my friends, that is why God hates sin. What it does to us. Because it damages us. It hurts our lives. It, it affects our relationship with God. In fact, at times in the Old Testament, God compared our decision to move away from him, not even consciously saying, I'm, I'm abandoning you, God, but I'm just not going to give you time or I'm going to go do something else. He, he likens that to adultery, which is a pretty heavy word to throw out there. But where we leave the one we have committed our lives to for something less, for something different, it is that big of a deal to him. God could easily give up on us and, and leave us to our own choices. But Paul says that no matter how much we have strayed, God doesn't stop caring. He doesn't stop loving you. He says in verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much. So much. I mean, that's one of those phrases you throw it out there. So much, so much. What does that mean? It means beyond what we can imagine. That's what God does in spite of what we do, in spite of where we've fallen short, in spite of our mistakes and failings. He loves us. Not, not a feeling, okay? Not like I, I, I feel warm thoughts to you, but a decision to accept you and me for who we are and work for our good. A willingness to go after a lost sheep, to keep, to keep a watch out for that prodigal son who left home, whom we hate to see the choices that they're making, but we love them so much that the moment they turn just even a little, the moment they begin to walk back to us for just a moment, we're there to meet them, to welcome them, to love them, and accept them back into, with our arms. It's a choice to love another, even when they are not lovable, when they make poor choices, when they, they run into hard times. It is not lust on a, on a wedding day, but a commitment that's still there 50 years later, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. It is an unconditional love. That word, unconditional, means that there are no conditions, no but, ands, or ors. It is an unconditional love that is patient and kind. It is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. No matter how far out there we may think we are or someone we care about is, love never ends. Love never quits. Don't you want that? Don't you yearn to know that that love is there for you? You, don't, you can't earn it. You haven't earned it. It's not because of some good things you've done or some terrible things that keep you from exper experiencing. God loves you with, with all the patience and kindness and joy that exists in creation. It isn't something we deserve, but it is so much something we need, we want it. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that you and I, every human being, was created for this. 
Paul continues on. He says in verse 5 that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. Now, there he doesn't mean just being alive, but that's, that's certainly true, you know, where you can feel your pulse and you got, you got a heartbeat going. But life that means something. You know, ultimately, as we go through life, we discover that, that being alive is a lot more than a pulse. It means having a life that matters, that makes a difference, that feels like I'm here for a reason and I have something to offer to, to this world or at least to a handful of people on this world. He says he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And here's this idea again of grace. This gift of God's unconditional love and mercy freely offered to us through Jesus Christ, which we've neither earned nor deserved. This idea of unconditional love, even when we moved away from God, when we separated ourselves, when we became uncomfortable, when we just stopped thinking it was important, when we gave up on it, when we backed away, God never did. I, I remember the story of a, I heard up in East Texas about a, uh, an older couple that was driving their pickup truck. It was an older truck and the, the gentleman was on the, behind the wheel and the, and the wife was sitting over near the door and they were driving along and as they come along, they come up behind another pickup truck. And in it is obviously a very young couple and the, the young man is driving and the, and the young lady is there, but she's kind of plastered up against him, you know, stuck there like they're inseparable. And as they're driving behind them for a, a, a minute or two, the, the wife turns to her husband and she says, you know, we used to be like that. Whatever happened to us? And the husband said, well, I never moved. <laughs> and God says to you, I never moved. I never moved. I never stopped giving up on you. I never thought you weren't worth anything or worthless. I loved you with such a depth of passion that I even sent my son for you. I love you that much. What happens though when we separate ourselves from our existence from life, the source of life, we die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, I, what I get paid when I sin is, is death. It's the price we pay for separating ourselves from the source of life. And, and while we may not immediately suffer physical death, like we would have we separated ourselves from a supply of oxygen, life that loses purpose, loses meaning, is, is, is in fact, some would say, even worse than death. And there's nothing that we can do on our end to, to restore it. It takes God reaching out to us as he did through his son, Jesus Christ. So that when we read that whole verse from Romans, it's not just that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. His death on the cross paid for our sins, paid the price for all our sins, for all people, for all time in all settings that have separated us from God. And, and he didn't do it just because we started changing our mind. He didn't do it because, hey, I showed up at church one day. He didn't do it because I thought, I mean, maybe I need to turn my life around. And Paul says in Romans, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, he says most people wouldn't be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In other words, while we were thumbing our nose at him, while we were saying, I don't have time for you, God, while we were saying, I don't care if there's a God or not or whether he matters 
On the cross, on that very first Good Friday, Jesus took upon himself the wages of sin that we deserved. Christ died our death, taking our place, showing us God's great love. And thankfully, his victory, his victory over sin and death becomes our victory too. Paul continues in verse six, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Now, clearly, I don't think we're raised yet. I mean, we can look around here and, and all, but I, just as surely as Christ was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, it's not simply an event in the past. It's not an ancient event. It's not he was raised. Notice the, the, the lettering here. He is risen. It is in the present sense. It's, it's now. He is risen. He has been risen for our sake so that the promise of Easter is that we too will rise for heaven someday if we have placed our faith and trust in Christ. Now, I can't prove to you, I, really, I can't prove that Christ was raised from the dead. It's why we call it faith. And yet, if you investigate, if you dig in, as many people have down through the centuries, you will discover that, that the evidence for the tomb being empty is so amazing, so incredible, that it takes, I would suggest, more faith not to believe it is empty than it is. And if it is empty, and in fact, he was risen from the grave, then his promise is something we can hold on to, that we too will be raised with Christ to eternity. Paul says, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. He's telling the Ephesians, and he tells us, as followers of Jesus Christ, they were, at that time, examples of God's incredible grace for those of us who would come after them in the future. That, that God would save Paul. Paul who had persecuted followers of Christ, who had sought to have them killed. He says someday people are going to look back at us and they're going to see us as examples of faith. But he writes that today to us as well, that someday people will look at us who have made that decision and they will see in us examples of his incredible wealth of grace and kindness toward us. That what Paul experienced and lived for us. You and I are called to live for those around us. And Paul reminds us that even today in the 21st century, his grace is still amazing and incredible. And he reminds them again, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. And this is such a critical statement. We are saved only, only by God's grace. And yet only as we believe and trust that it's true. I mean, if I, if I could pull out a $100 bill from my pocket and I'd say, you know, here's a hundred bucks and, and I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna hand it to one of you. And, and I just kind of lay it there and, and you're excited to get the gift and it's, it's really wonderful, a hundred dollars you can do a lot with. But then you, you walk out the door and you forget it. You leave it here on the edge of the platform and you go to go to eat somewhere and you say, man, Randy gave me $100 and I'm going to use that to pay for my lunch at Luby's today. And you go through the line and you get all your food and you reach in your pocket. Oops, something fell out. 
but not $100. Why not? Because you left it. It is not yours until you receive it. In your mind, it can be yours. It was given to you. Great. But if I don't receive it, if I don't take it into my life, if I don't act, if it is is real and true, there are no benefits. None. As much as I can say, he gave me $100, really. The folks at Luby's aren't going to care until you produce the $100. Until you produce faith. Until you believe. Until you allow God's Spirit to live in you, you trust Him and allow Him to begin to transform your heart from the inside out to change the way you live your life. Paul says, this isn't a bonus because you've done some good things along the way, you know, something a little extra. It's because we still missed the mark, we strayed. And, and, you know, to go back to the analogy of adultery, no spouse is going to simply overlook an adulterous mate. Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, He took the punishment that we deserve. He took it. So God has offered to you and me then as we receive Christ the eternal gift of salvation as a gift. It is a gift. You didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. We can't be good enough to receive it. We can't say when I get my act together. It is only a gift. And and until we receive it, Nothing changes. So we can't brag about being good. We can't talk about how deserving we are because we aren't. But the good news is when we do accept it and we allow God's spirit to work in us, as you saw in that video earlier in the service, 29 individuals in this church family stood before this congregation on Good Friday evening and they they professed that not only had they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but they were obedient to Christ who said, go and be baptized, and allowed themselves to be baptized in a setting where they stood up and everybody saw. It wasn't, hey, I'm a secret Christian, I'm a secret aide, I'm, I'm Christian 007, and I'm going to work around in the background, you know, and, 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 and try to sneak around. God is not calling any of us to be secret agents. He's calling us to be soldiers out front. He's calling us to be men, women, students, and children of faith living it out right where we are. If you're a secret agent, he doesn't have time for that. It's a waste of his time. He's calling us to this wonderful good news that these people testified as God transforms us. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's masterpiece. He says that to us, each one of us, personally, individually. Don't look at the person next to you and say, well, that's the masterpiece, not me. No, it's you. It really is you. And God's intention from the beginning of time when he had already seen your life and, was, and, and decided to create you, he, the scripture says he was going to create you as a masterpiece. Now, each one of us can take crayons and we can draw over the masterpiece. But God says, I made you to be a masterpiece. And through my son, I can restore and make it as good as new. That's what you and I are created for. And you can trust Jesus that this is true. Because listen, he predicted his death. He talked about, hey, I'm going to be killed. Okay, somebody might say I'm going to be killed. But listen how he did it. He said, I'm going to be killed. He talked about the exact means. He talked about how would we've done. He talked about people gambling for his clothes. He talked about all kinds of things that no matter how smart a person is, you can't control how other people react and respond. And yet these people did exactly what he said. And not only did he say, I'm going to be killed, crucified, but he said, on the third day, 
I will rise. And nobody believed that. Nobody. It was unheard of. It had never been done before. And it has not been done since. He is risen. He did what no one said could be done. Now let me tell you, if he can predict that, you wonder if maybe he's someone we can trust. If he could do the impossible there, then maybe he can do the impossible in my life. Maybe he can walk me through some things. And I think I'm supposed to follow Jesus and do it this way, but man, it doesn't make sense to me. Now, following Jesus isn't necessarily easy. And it's not necessarily painless. Jesus went to the cross. He never sinned. There's no promise of that. But the promise is that at the end of our days, there is a resurrection awaiting those of us who have put our faith in him. There is nothing that the devil in this life can throw at us that can rob us of this promise, this testimony of Easter that God's grace really is amazing. John Newton, this guy thought he had gone so far that there was no hope. He'd been born into a Christian home, but as a youth he went to sea, and not long after he went to sea, he renounced his faith. He said, no more, I don't believe this stuff. And yet in March of 1748 in the North Atlantic, a violent storm hit their ship and swept overboard a sailor whose location where he was swept overboard had been the very spot Newton had been standing only moments earlier. And Newton, in the midst of this storm, in fact, lashing himself with another sailor to the pump, cried out to God for God's mercy. And the ship survived the storm. And once ashore, Newton began to wonder if he could be worthy of God's mercy if there was any way that he could be redeemable for all that he had done because he had not only neglected the faith he not only just said it's not a big deal or I don't have time for it he renounced it he said I don't even believe this stuff anymore but God had worked in him and he continued trying to figure out what had happened to him even as he became captain of a vessel involved in the slave trade as God continued to work on him and convictions continued to grow within him that caused him to leave the slave trade, become a pastor. And we believe, what we know is that Newton probably wrote Amazing Grace in, in late 1772 for a message that he planned on preaching on New Year's Day, 1773, to reflect on God's amazing grace that had been shown to him personally, a wretch he believed, who had received more than he ever deserved, that God had saved him when he believed. Like the prodigal son whose father said his son had been lost, but then on his return had now been found. Newton came to know what it meant to be lost and now found by God. God's amazing grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, some have said. And the cool thing is, for you and me, is this grace is available today for you. It's not just something in the past. It's not just for the good people or the people who go to church. It's for them. It's for all of us. We're all in the same boat. And if you choose to receive it, it's here to help you. But if you walk out and you don't receive it, you don't have it. you do accept it you start on a journey that reflects God's amazing grace in your life that God wants to work in you to transform you 
get you through stuff. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at how God's grace and wisdom can help us experience God's best, even when we feel overwhelmed. And most of us do at some time or another. I hope you'll join us beginning next Sunday. Because Easter, it's not just simply a nice holiday. It's not something that I can just kind of mark off of my list. It is celebrating the day that God demonstrated his victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It's no wonder that that the song Amazing Grace has touched the conscience of the world. It speaks to a longing, to a seeking in every soul that somehow we have all missed the mark. We We have failed to follow in the path exactly what God intended. But it is not a dead end for wherever you and I are. God can take us and through His grace renew us, restore us, rejuvenate us, walk with us to do things we could never do on our own because His power is at work in us. The power that created the universe, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to work in your life and mine as we trust Christ touches what John Newton and the prodigal son and the apostle Paul all wrestled with. Can God really love me? Me. Right now, right where I'm at, whether I kicked the cat this morning or I did some nice things or in fact, I've got a really dark past and I'm in the middle of stuff right now that I don't know how to get out of. life he calls you and me to live that we were created to be God's masterpiece to live and trust him day after day because it is amazing grace I invite you to stand and we're gonna just a moment sing amazing grace just a little bit more and as you stand our our prayer team is going to come down front and I want to invite you, if, if you feel God calling into your heart this, this yearning, if you feel like somehow my life hasn't been where it needs to be, if you feel like I could be different by the grace of God, which is true, you can come and talk to them or talk to someone. Don't walk out of here today. Don't go back to where you've been. Let God's amazing grace work in you. Heavenly Father, all of us come before you fallen. All of us have made mistakes. All of us sin. All of us have missed the mark. All of us have disappointed you and, and failed to go where you called us to go. And if that were the end of the story, we'd all be doomed. But your grace is so amazing that through Jesus Christ, you came to be with us, to express that love to us, and even to die our death our wages of sin that we might be freed so that the resurrection that Jesus experienced is our resurrection some of us today need resurrection Father we don't need to try to fix things we need certain things about our lives to in fact die 
and new life, resurrection come. And the promise you give us is that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Father, may that start for many of us today. As we praise you. www.gateway-community.org Welcome to your journey.